Section 26 of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Priscilla Shodeke. History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by Alexander and George Sutherland. New Zealand Colonized. Part 2. 8. Wellington. Meantime, the Tory was ploughing the deep on her way to New Zealand. Her passengers first saw the new country on the west coast of the South Island. They were then very much disappointed, for the shore was high and wild, the mountains were close behind it, and their lofty sides were gloomy and savage. The whole scene was grand but did not promise much land that would be suitable for farming. They turned into Cook Strait and anchored in Queen Charlotte Sound, a lovely harbour, but surrounded by high hills clothed in dark and heavy forests. When they landed, they were amazed at the depth and richness of the black soil and the immense size to which the trees grew. Such a soil could grow all sorts of produce in rich abundance, but it would cost forty pounds an acre to clear it for ploughing. Boats were got out, however, and parties rowed up into all the branches of the beautiful harbour, but without seeing any sufficient extent of level or open land. Then they crossed the strait, and sailing in by a narrow entrance, viewed all the wide expanse of Port Nicholson. It was a great harbour, with a little wooded island in its middle. It opened out into quiet arms, all fringed with shelly beaches, and behind these rose range after range of majestic mountains. The trouble was that here too the land, which was fairly level, was too limited in extent to satisfy the colony's needs. For already in England the company had sold 100,000 acres of farming land, and the purchasers would soon be on their way to occupy it. After examining the shores with care, they chose the beach of the east side as the site for their town. Behind it stretched the beautiful valley of the Hutt River, enclosed by mountains, but with broad grassy meadows lying between. Here they started to build a town, which they called Britannia, and they made friends with the Maoris of the district. A Pakeha Maori named Barrett acted as interpreter. The natives went on board the Tory, were shown 239 muskets, 300 blankets, 160 tomahawks and axes, 276 shirts, together with a quantity of looking-glasses, scissors, razors, jackets, pots, and scores of other things, with 81 kegs of gunpowder, two casts of cartridges, and more than a ton of tobacco. They were asked if they would sell all the land that could be seen from the ship in return for these things. They agreed, signed some papers, and took the goods on shore, where they at once began to use the muskets in a grand fight among themselves for the division of the property. It was soon discovered that the side of the town was too much exposed to westerly gales, and the majority of settlers crossed Port Nicholson to a narrow strip of grassy land between a pretty beach and some steep hills. Here was founded the town called Wellington, after the famous Duke. By this time the settlers were arriving thick and fast. The first came in the Aurora, 
which reached the settlement on 22nd January 1840. Other ships came at short intervals, till there were twelve at anchor in Port Nicholson. The settlers were pleased with the country. They landed in good spirits and set to work to make themselves houses. All was activity, surveyors, carpenters, bricklayers, blacksmiths, everyone busy, and rapidly a smart little town of some hundred houses rose behind the beach. The Maori came and helped in the work, getting three or four shillings a day for their services, and proving themselves very handy in many ways. All were in sanguine spirits when word came from Governor Hobson at Auckland that, in accordance with his proclamation, all purchases of land from the natives were illegal, he having come to protect the Maoris from imposition. 9. The Land Question Now Colonel Wakefield had fancied that he had bought 20 million acres for less than 9,000 pounds worth of goods, and he was assigning it as fast as he could to people who had paid one pound an acre to the company in England. Here was a sad fix. The governor sent down his chief officer, Mr. Shortland, who rode across the island with the mounted police, and told the settlers not to fancy the land theirs, as he would ere long have to turn them off. Disputes arose, for it seemed absurd that fifty-eight Maori chiefs should sell the land on which many thousands of people dwelt, the majority of these people never having so much as heard of the bargain. The settlers talked of starting for South America and forming a colony in Chile. But more kept on coming, so that they had not ships enough to take them across. And besides, they had paid a pound an acre to the company and demanded their land. Colonel Wakefield went off to Auckland to talk the matter over with Governor Hobson, who left the difficulty to be settled by his superior, Governor Gipps, at Sydney. Wakefield then went to Sydney to see Governor Gipps, who said that the whole thing was irregular, but that he would allow the settlers to occupy the land, supposing that every Maori who had a proper claim to any part of it got due compensation, and if twenty acres of the central part of Wellington were reserved for public buildings. These conditions Wakefield agreed to and, very glad to have got out of a serious difficulty, he returned with the good tidings. Shortly afterward, Governor Hobson himself visited Wellington, but was very coldly received by the settlers there. In the next two years, 350 ships arrived at Wellington, bringing out over 4,000 settlers. Of these, about 1,000 went up into the valleys and made farms, but 3,000 stayed in and around Wellington, which then grew to be a substantial little town, with four good piers, about two hundred houses of wood or brick, and about two hundred and fifty houses of more slender construction. More than two hundred Maoris could be seen in its streets, clad in the European clothes given as payment for the land. In all there were about seven hundred Maoris in the district, and for their use the company set apart eleven thousand acres of farmlands, and 110 acres in the town. Roads were being made into the fertile valleys, where eight or 10,000 acres were occupied as farms being rapidly cleared and tilled. Parties were organized to go exploring across the mountains. They brought back word that inland the soil was splendid, sometimes covered with forests, sometimes with meadows of long grass or New Zealand flax, but always watered by beautiful rivers, 
and under a lovely climate. The Maoris were everywhere friendly throughout their journey. 10. Taranaki In the beginning of the year 1840, an emigration society had been formed in the southwest of England to enable the farm labourers and miners of Cornwall, Devon and Dorset to settle in less crowded lands. The Earl of Devon was its president and Plymouth its headquarters. They chose New Zealand for the site of their colony, and understanding that New Zealand Company had bought half of the North Island, they gave that company £10,000 for the right to select 60,000 acres of it. It was in March 1841 that the pioneers of this new colony arrived at Wellington under the guidance of Mr. Carrington, a surveyor in the ship, William Bryant. The exploring party had just come back, and its report of the Taranaki land was very tempting. Immediately after receiving that report, Colonel Wakefield had gone off to purchase it. He found a few natives left there, the remnant of the tribes whom Tehuero Huero had destroyed or carried into slavery. These few people had taken refuge up in the awful solitudes of the giant Mount Egmont, but had come back to dwell a sorrow-stricken handful in the homes of their fathers. Barrett was left to arrange a bargain with them, and in return for a quantity of goods they sold all the land along sixty miles of coast, with a depth of fifteen miles inland. This was the land which Wakefield recommended for the new settlers, and he lent them a ship to take them round. There they landed, and in spite of their disappointment at the want of safe harbour, they set to work and built up their little town, which they called New Plymouth. In September of the same year, the main body of settlers arrived for this new colony and were landed at Taranaki, when they immediately scattered out over the country as fast as Carrington could survey it for them. But there was now a difficulty, for Tehuerawero and his tribe had released many hundreds of the Taranaki natives who had been carried off as slaves. Whether it was because they could now become Christians or because the slaves were more in number than they could use, it was not easy to determine. But at any rate, in that very month of September, when hundreds of white men were arriving to occupy the land, hundreds of Maoris were coming back to reoccupy it. They begged the settlers not to fell their big trees, but were very mild in their conduct. They chose places not yet claimed by the white men, and there fenced in the land on which to grow their sweet potatoes. Meanwhile, there was another complication. By Maori custom, a warrior had the ownership of the lands he conquered. Governor Hobson, therefore, regarded Tewerowero as the owner of the Taranaki land, and gave him four hundred pounds for his right to it. Hobson declared that the Auckland government was the owner of this land, and that all settlers must buy it from him. Eventually, the trouble was cleared up for the time being, when Hobson allowed the company to keep ten miles of coast running back, five or six miles, the rest to belong to the government, which would set aside a certain part for the use of the Maoris. In December 1842, a settler claimed a piece of land which a Maori had fenced in. He pulled down the fence. The Maoris put it up again. The settler, assisted by an officer, pulled it down once more. A young chief who brandished a tomahawk and threatened mischief was arrested and carried into New Plymouth, where a magistrate liberated him and declared the action of the settler illegal. Matters for a time kept in this unfriendly state, 
ominously hinting the desperate war that was to follow. 11. Wanganui Meanwhile, the settlers in the Wellington district were finding that by crossing difficult mountains, they could get sufficient level land for their purpose, and at the close of 1840, 200 of them sailed 150 miles north to where the river Wanganui falls into Cook Strait. The land was rich and the district beautiful. Colonel Wakefield supposed that he had bought the whole of it, though the natives afterwards proved that they sold only part on the north side of the river. Here, about four miles from the mouth of the stream, the settlers formed a little town which they called Petre, but which is now known as Wanganui. The natives were numerous on the river banks, their villages were frequent, and up on the hills that rose all around like an amphitheatre, the palisades of their fortified paths were easily visible. But the fine black soil of the district, in places grassy, in places with patches of fine timber, proved very attractive to the settlers, and soon there came half a dozen ships with more colonists, direct from England. The natives were friendly to the white men, and gave them a cordial welcome. Down the river came their canoes laden with pigs, potatoes, melons, and gourds for sale in the market of the little town. It was all goodwill until the Maoris found that the white men had come not merely to settle among them, but to appropriate all the best of the land. Then their tempers grew sour, and the prospect steadily grew more unpleasant. 12. Nelson the emigration spirit was at this time strong in England, for it was in the year 1840 to 1841 that free settlers chiefly colonised both Victoria and South Australia. New Zealand was as much a favourite as any, and when the New Zealand Company proposed in 1841 to form a new colony somewhere in that country to be called Nelson, Nearly 100,000 acres were sold at 30 shillings an acre to men who did not know even in which island of New Zealand the land was to be situated. In April of the same year, the pioneers of the new settlement started in the ships Whitby and Will Watch, with about 80 settlers, their wives, families, and servants. Captain Arthur Wakefield was the leader, and he took the ships to Wellington, where they waited while he went out to search for a suitable site. He chose a place at the head of Tasman Bay, where in a green hollow fringed by beautiful beach and embosomed deep in majestic hills, the settlers soon gathered in the pretty little town of Nelson. The soil was black earth resting on great boulders. Out of it grew low bushes easily cleared away, and here and there stood a few clumps of trees to give a grateful shade. The place was shut in by the hills, so as to be completely sheltered from the boisterous gales of Cook Strait, and altogether it was a place of dreamy loveliness. Its possession was claimed by Rao Paraha, the warrior on the ground of conquest. With him and other chiefs, the settlers had a conference, the result of which was that a certain specified area round the head of the bay was purchased but the white men regarded themselves as having the right of superior beings to go where they wished and to do with the land what they wished. Finding a seam of good coal at a place outside their purchase, they did not in any way scruple to send a vessel to carry it off, in spite of the protests of the Maoris. 13. 
Death of Governor Hobson. These things hinted at troubles which were to come, but in 1842 all things looked promising for the colonies of New Zealand. There were altogether about 12,000 white persons, most of them being men who wore blue shirts and lived on pork and potatoes. Auckland, the capital, had 3,000, but Wellington was the largest town with 4,000 people. Next to that came Nelson, with 2,500. New Plymouth and Wanganui were much smaller, but yet thriving places. They had no less than nine newspapers, most of them little primitive sheets, but wonderful in communities so young. In October 1841, Dr. George Selwyn was appointed to be Bishop of New Zealand, and he left England with a number of clergymen who settled in Auckland, Wellington, Nelson, and New Plymouth. Churches began to spring up and schools not only for white children but also for Maoris. An immense change for the better had appeared among the Maoris. The last case of cannibalism took place about this time, and though they still fought among one another, it was not with the same awful bloodshed that had characterized the previous twenty years. On the 16th November, 1840, the Queen declared New Zealand an independent colony. Hobson was then no longer lieutenant governor merely, and subject to governor at Sydney. He was Governor Hobson, and of equal rank with all the other governors. He now had a legislative council to assist him in making for New Zealand such laws as might be needed in her peculiar circumstances. In that council, the Chief Justice, the Colonial Secretary, the Surveyor General, the Attorney General, and the Protector of the Maoris had seats. But Hobson did not long enjoy his new dignity. He had had a difficult task to perform, and his duty had led him into conflict with many people who had wished to purchase their land from the natives at ridiculous prices. In the midst of his worries, he had several strokes of paralysis, of which the last killed him in September 1842, and he was buried in the cemetery at Auckland. He had lived, however, to see New Zealand colonized, and had died much liked by the Maoris without seeing any of that bitter struggle between the two races which was soon to shed so much blood and waste so much treasure end of section 26 recording by priscilla shodeke